The Old Pilot's Plain Tales The Consequence of a Deliberate Act It's September 1987 and NATO were involved in a massive military exercise in the Mediterranean off the coast of Sardinia called Display Determination 87. More than 40 ships from four countries took part, which apart from other objectives tested the ability of NATO forces with mechanised attacks on the rolling hills of Capo Teolada. In one of the task forces taking part in the exercise was the USS Saratoga, a Forrestal-class supercarrier commissioned in 1956 and the second to be named after the Battle of Saratoga, part of the American War of Independence. From her early days, the Saratoga had formed part of the US presence in the Mediterranean Sea and she toured there frequently. In June 1987, she was on her 19th deployment to the area when she took part in Display Determination 87. Within the exercise, there were many tactical scenarios being played out in addition to the amphibious landings, one of which was a simulated attack on the Saratoga's task force by a pair of F-16s. Two of the Saratoga's F-14 Tomcats were tasked to defend the carrier against this attack. The leader of this small formation included a senior pilot and skipper of a newly arrived junior grade lieutenant, Timothy Dorsey. Dorsey had just joined his unit, the VF-74, a fighter squadron known as the Bedevilers. Apparently, it didn't take the young Dorsey long to commit his first faux pas by announcing to the senior aviator that his call sign would be smoke. No, it's not, was the firm reply. Naval nicknames that became personal call signs are never chosen by the owner of such a moniker, but gifted to them by their colleagues, usually after some embarrassing blunder to remind them of their transgression. The Saratoga left port to start its participation in exercise display determination, and on the 22nd of September 1987 things were well underway. On that day, a pair of USAF F-16s were expected to run an attack on the Naval Task Force with the aim of finding the aircraft carrier and running a mock attack on the vessel. The pair of F-14s had been briefed to launch with the aim of opposing this attack. In the number two aircraft was the newly arrived Lieutenant Junior Grade, Timothy Dorsey, with a senior radar intercept officer, Rio, Lieutenant Commander Edmund Dutch Holland, in the back to keep an eye on him. Leading the pair was a senior pilot with Dorsey's skipper in the back seat. During the start-up, the lead aircraft developed a technical fault that prevented him from flying, so Dorsey was dispatched to fly the mission alone. He duly completed his preparation and taxied his aircraft towards the catapult to launch. As he waited for the aircraft ahead to depart, he was told to go purple to switch to the encrypted frequency, whereupon he was informed of a change to their mission, 
and was given a different vector to depart on. When the time came, Dorsey and Holland hooked up to the catapult shoe, the JBD jet blast deflectors were raised and they were fired from the deck. They launched with a fully armed aircraft, the reason for which is a little unclear except to say that the area of the Mediterranean had a number of countries that were far from friendly to the United States and it would not have been unusual to arm a proportion of their aircraft. In the aftermath of this story, the Navy would officially state that, depending on the exercise and nature of it, they may or may not use live weapons. As they climbed away from the carrier, the F-14 crew headed north to intercept an exercise attacker that had been detected. The aircraft in question was the United States Air Force RF-4 Phantom, call sign of Vodka 5-1, that had launched from the Italian airbase at Aviano. Aboard were Captain Mike Ross and behind him the Weapons Systems Officer, WSO, First Lieutenant Mike Sprouse. They went feet wet as they crossed the West Italian coast and set off across the Tyrrhenian Sea, looking for the KC-135 tanker that they were to rendezvous with. Once they'd located it, they slipped in behind and began to top up their tanks. It was while they were in contact that Mike Sprouse looked over his shoulder and noticed an F-14 sitting a little way off their wing. It was Dorsey, and he had already found his target. Having topped up, the RF-4 turned away from the tanker and started to search for the ship, noting while they did that the Tomcat had not stayed to refuel but was following them. On that day, the F-4's tactical electronic reconnaissance, Terek equipment, that provided precision direction finding, passive ranging and emitter threat identification, wasn't cooperating. But then they noticed that the TACAN, the tactical air navigation beacon, on board the Saratoga was up and transmitting on the same channel that it had been three days earlier. With a solid lock on the carrier's position, they started to descend on their simulated attack run. All the while, Dorsey had been trailing the Phantom for some 15 minutes now. He had been fortunate to have found the F-4 so early, and would probably be getting a natter boy for engaging it at the beginning of its attack run. Since he was visual, and his target was only a mile or two away, he tried to lock the Tomcat's radar to it using the PLM, Pilot Lock Mode, but the radar wouldn't hold lock as the RF-4 had a jamming pod on board and was also dropping chaff. Since his radar wouldn't track, Dorsey decided to lock his target up with an AIM-9 Sidewinder missile, the seeker head of which was quite capable of following the target. Now in a position to take down the Phantom, Dorsey asked for instructions, and the reply from his controller was red and free, indicating that he was clear to engage. Probably everyone in the entire exercise, except perhaps Dorsey, would realise that this command required a simulated attack on the friendly USAF aircraft that Dorsey had in his sights. But the F-14 pilot 
had completely misunderstood the command. He asked his Rio, does that mean they want me to shoot this guy? His backseater replies, yeah, shoot, and clearly calls to the strike controller that they are firing a simulated Fox 2, code for a heat-seeking missile. Dorsey armed his weapons and squeezed the trigger. There was still a moment when this situation could have been salvaged because the selected weapon failed to fire. It didn't go, exclaimed Dorsey. Whilst he was rejecting the useless missile and selecting an alternative one, the controller on the radio interrupts them by questioning their status. Before his Rio in the back can process what Dorsey is doing or get a word in to question his statement, the pilot pulls the trigger a second time, and this time he is rewarded by a roar as the sidewinder leaps off the rails. Dorsey watches the winder dip low and run inside the turn, and then he saw it hit around the stabilator on the port side followed by a big fireball. The exploding warhead had blown the tail off the Phantom completely, and in an uncontrollable descent of minus 2.5g, the RF-4 accelerates to over 550 knots before the unfortunate, but so far uninjured, crew can eject. The Phantom pilot shouts that they have firelights on and that they should get out. I'm gone, replies his backseater. As they punch out of the stricken aircraft, the G-forces prevented them from adopting a good posture, and as a result, the pilot, Captain Ross, suffered leg, shoulder, and long-term back injuries. In the F-14, the Rio, Dutch Holland, saw the burning remains of the Phantom and asked incredulously, You shot him down? after which he puts out a mayday call, stating that they had splashed the Fox 4. It would appear that Dorsey's choice of smoke, as his personal call sign, had been a good one after all. As the Tomcat circled over the downed Phantom crew, they watched the burning wreckage slip beneath the surface. The realisation of what he had just done must have finally come home to Dorsey, who said, I'm sorry, I guess I kind of screwed this up. Even though they were only five miles from the Saratoga, it took half an hour for a helicopter to find and rescue Ross and Sprouse, but when located they were brought aboard. By then the F-14 had landed back on and the crew were staring at the empty Sidewinder station and the black scorch marks the missile firing had left. The Saratoga's captain met the Air Force crew and told them the truth. We shot you down, Captain Frost said. We really shot you down and we're really sorry. You're kidding, right? Sprouse asked. No, we shot you down. Now, seriously, you're kidding, right? Sprouse asked again. In this case, I wish I was, Frost said. Jeez, guys, I thought we were on the same side, Sprouse said. Well, we normally are, Frost said. Today it didn't work out like that. 
Sprouse, the phantom wizzo, was furious and had to be held back to prevent him from going looking for the pilot that shot him down. In the aftermath, the Navy convened a FENAB, a Field Naval Aviators Evaluation Board, to examine the circumstances that led Dorsey to engage United States Air Force aircraft with live missiles. Dorsey's defence which was partly accepted by the board, was that during his training on a simulator assessment, it failed a trip for lack of decisiveness by not responding promptly to a red and free instruction. He was apparently informed that this command meant that he should engage with live weapons. He also indicated confusion over his change of orders prior to launching, which led him to believe that he was no longer part of the exercise, but on a live mission. In addition, in the back of his mind was the information that he picked up that rogue actors might be trying to hijack military aircraft to use against US forces. Whilst the board accepted some of these points, they failed to accept that, having watched the RF-4 refuel from a USAF KC-135 tanker before heading towards the carrier, it was possible that Dorsey could have reasonably mistaken this aircraft for anything other than a genuine Air Force fighter. The final decision of the board was that Dorsey could continue to wear his Navy wings but would be permanently grounded, never to pilot a Navy aircraft again. Subsequent endorsements of these findings by senior Navy commanders were more scathing of Dorsey's actions. The battle group commander wrote that the destruction of United States Air Force RF-4C was not the result of an accident, but the consequence of a deliberate act. Dorsey's subsequent reaction to the radio command demonstrated an absolute disregard of the known facts and circumstances. He failed to utilise the decision-making process taught in replacement training and reacted in a purely mechanical manner. The performance of Lieutenant Timothy W. Dorsey on September 22, 1987, raises substantial doubt as to his capacity for good sound judgment. In another opinion, the commander of the Sixth Fleet stated, We necessarily rely on the self-discipline and judgment of pilots to prevent such incidents. We have no other choice. Nothing, in my opinion, can mitigate Lieutenant Dorsey's basic error in judgment. With such damning verdicts on Lieutenant Dorsey's character and ability, one might well think that he would leave the Navy and slip quietly into anonymity. At least that's what the RF-4 pilot, Captain Ross, the victim of this affair, assumed. The injuries he suffered during his ejection developed into a lifelong fight to overcome permanent disability. The damage caused to his spine left him in permanent pain and resulted in degeneration that more than 30 operations couldn't halt. 
he was forced to give up his flying career and leave the Air Force prematurely. He reached the rank of Lieutenant Colonel but was medically discharged just months before he would have qualified for a full regular pension. It was in 2012 that Ross discovered that he'd been wrong about Dorsey. He hadn't disappeared into obscurity. Fifteen years after being forced into early retirement, he learned that Dorsey had been nominated for promotion to a one-star rear admiral, an appointment that required congressional approval. It appeared that after leaving active duty, Dorsey had joined the Naval Reserve Intelligence Programme. In his spare time, he attended law school, graduating magna cum laude from the University of Richmond. His career in intelligence flourished, and along with a blooming career as a civilian lawyer, he assumed command of the Defence Intelligence Agency headquarters and was later Navy Reserve Inspector General in Norfolk, Virginia. After all that he'd suffered, Lieutenant Colonel Ross, retired, felt indignant that Dorsey hadn't been thrown out of the Navy for his actions and has subsequently enjoyed a fine career that was about to get even better. He wrote to his own congressman, who took Ross's complaint to the committee that reviewed these promotions. Shortly after the promotion nomination went public, Dorsey sent Ross a letter, which partly read, I was unaware you suffered from any lingering injuries. I'm truly sorry for the incident, and even sorrier for its impact on you. Although by then Ross had forgiven Dorsey, his complaint to Congress raised the issue of Dorsey's previous record, something that was noticeably absent from his official career highlights. The Senate decided not to act on the Navy's recommendation of promoting Dorsey, and any such hopes that he might achieve the rank of Rear Admiral were dashed. He left the Navy the following year. One final twist in the story was that at the time of the incident, Lieutenant Dorsey's father was serving as the captain of the Kitty Hawk class carrier USS America and it was rumoured that he had also been involved in a friendly fire incident during the Vietnam War. My thanks to Boom Operator Chris for bringing this story to my attention. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guys show, and you can find out all about that at airlinepilotguy.com. Plane Tales is also a standalone podcast, and if you're listening to this, you'll know that. So, if you have a moment, perhaps you could pop across to Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice and leave us a nice review. It'd certainly help. Many thanks, and thanks for listening.